0: Again, thank you for your welcome, and it's lovely to be here with you to spend time together in this powerful but challenging passage, which will help us in our thinking as we serve the Lord Jesus Christ, make him known to others. Let me start like this. Come with me to Mexico. There was a Mexican mechanic, his name Humberto Leo, and he was executed in Texas, Mexican background, Texas uh, occupation, because he was a murderer. He attacked and killed a 16-year-old girl. But he became a Christian in prison. And he went to his death with these words, and I quote, The Lord Jesus Christ is my life. I know he has forgiven me. I have accepted his forgiveness. Now, to some people, that's marvellous. A wonderful demonstration of the reach of the gospel of grace, the goodness and kindness of God. And to other people, it's scandalous. And it's not surprising to them when friends say, how can Christianity be taken seriously when a murderer goes to his execution so apparently confident that he's a forgiven sinner? How can God kind of do that? And there are serious anxieties uh, about God's forgiveness inside the church as well as outside it. If we step off the line of understanding what God's forgiveness means and involves, If God's gracious mop is bigger than any mess that we're capable of making, then surely we can do whatever we like. And in fact, if we do some things that God doesn't like, then what we're able to do through doing that as we make more and more mess is making it possible for God to mop up and us to share in fresh delight in God's power to clean up after us, whatever we do, whatever that may involve. And there are parts of the Christian world, in particular in in some parts of Africa, when that way of mishearing, that kind of false teaching that says you can do whatever you like in terms of making a mess because God's mop will always mop up and clean up after you is causing disastrous damage. And we can think of perhaps friends and family members who've misheard what you've so far heard in the earlier parts of this letter to to think of a kind of a free ride to do whatever we want because God's mop is always greater than our capacity to make a mess of our lives or somebody else's. Look at the first line of our reading. That's what the objection is. What should we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Shall we go on making a mess so that we can delight in the power of God's mock? If you need to do it, it's worth knowing that this letter we're reading is from the main architect of the expansion of Christianity all around the Mediterranean world, the Apostle Paul. Here he writes to Christians in Rome, encouraging them to pray, and he's got in his sights going to Spain. And he wants them to grasp this good news of God's love so deeply, so kind of fully, that they'll be able to live together in unity and harmony in spite of a, being a bit of a mixed bag culturally. There have been some cultural tensions, he wants them to overcome them by understanding the depth of God's love and goodness to them. And the letter as a whole starts with faith, kind of empty-handed faith, by which receive God's gift of forgiveness, his free pardon for our rebellion, at the cost of the death of his son. And his focus for the series that this is part of for these few Sundays is life. If the letter starts with faith and we receive God's free pardon by faith, well, the question that follows is what's involved in a life of faith? What's involved in a life as God makes new creatures for his new creation? And this passage, as you'll see on the outline, begins with a perfectly natural reaction to what Paul has been saying. We need to get to the point where it's a possibility that we're going to so misunderstand the good news of God's kindness that we abuse it so delighted are we by the range of God's forgiveness that we kind of take it for granted we need to get to that point otherwise we're in danger of not having understood fully just how freely and generously and repeatedly at cost to himself God forgives Do do you see that if there's no danger of having this objection so you're saying I can do what I like then we haven't understood the force of the offer That comes in the earlier chapter but go back to last week's sermon if you want to hear more of that so here's the objection taking it for granted that we can nearly believe that we can do what we like because God's forgiveness is so wonderfully and freely available and the objection is so then is grace an immoral religion is it okay to go on sinning so that we can go on display, go on through that, receiving and displaying the wonder of God's forgiveness. I find the mop and the mess a helpful way to picture that. So someone says to Paul, look, are you really saying that Christians can go on making a, a, a mess again and again through the years of their own lives and sometimes of other people's lives without worrying too much about it because God's mop is always available and he's always willing to clean up. You see the force of the question. So now he answers the objection. And he says, no, verse 2. He says, by no means, no, sir, we might say. And then he says something as he develops his argument that sounds very odd to us. He says in verse 2, "Now that's not a real objection, it's not a right objection, because Christians, he says, we are those who have died to sin. So how can we go on living in it any longer? Well, what does he mean by that? Before we run through the details of these verses that follow, it's worth realizing that sin, in verse 2, where he says we've died to sin, is not simply an action, as if sin is an action as if I punch you on the nose for no good reason, but sin is also a power. And sin as a power looks and sounds like this. A member of our family said to me recently about someone we both know. He said slightly ruefully, I don't know anybody else who brings every conversation about any topic around to himself sooner or later in the way that he does. You know someone like that? And the person that uh, he's referring to is a very kind man. He's a very successful man. His wife tries to help him not to bring every conversation back to himself, but she actually can't prevent that from happening because sin is a power that controls him. So we need to remember that as we come to this language about sin. It is things that we do wrong, but it is more than that. It's a power that has a hold over us. It's also worth clocking the very close connection between Christ and every Christian that controls Paul's thinking. And that's not usual for us in in this part of the world. In verse 3, he says, We were baptized into Christ Jesus. And he means that whatever happened to Christ is reckoned to to have happened by God to us. So we're going to look at Christ's death in verse 3 and Christ's death in verse 5 and Christ's death in verse 8. And each time it's not just his, it's ours as well. His burial in verse 4, his resurrection in verse 5. And one of the things that we need to get our heads around is that we are there in him what happens to him involves us as Christians. Now, I want to say that collectivist cultures understand that, that, that much more easily than uh, we, we do in this part of the world. So for a person from Asia, we comes before I. The community or the family or the village exists and comes first. And because we exist, therefore I am. It's all around in, in this part of the world for, for many of us in, in childhood. I'm trying to illustrate it like this. One of our granddaughters, who is three, uh, who uh, lives in Sheffield, is being trained by her father to sing Hull City supporters' songs. <laughs> She's being raised to identify herself with the misfortunes of Hull City. So our little granddaughter could say, We drew yesterday against Nottingham Forest. But she could also say, We drew on the 22nd of March in 1930 at Ellard Road, Leeds, in the semi-final of the FA Cup. And she could say, and we lost by a goal to nil. And the team story for her, as her father indoctrinates her, is that the team story is her story, even though she didn't play and she nor he had been born. All right, I hope that's going to set us up for making our way through the details of what Paul says in ways that are, 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 if you like, different from the way our culture thinks, but vital for the way we as Christians learn to think. Verse 3. So don't you know, he says, that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus, and baptism is shorthand for everything God does when he makes someone a Christian. At that point, God unites us with Christ, and his story becomes our story from then on. So verse 3, Christ died... And so we died. And sin at that point included us in Christ with its final sentence. And from that point, sin can do no more than carry out the death sentence. Sin no longer has a right to rule over us because as he died, so did we. And you see, verse 4 links Christ's burial and our baptism. Burial reveals the finality of death. In Christ, we really did die to sin because we're buried with him as he was so for us. And then verse 4 looks on beyond burial, death and burial to resurrection, beyond death and beyond burial, and records God's purpose in raising Christ and because we're so identified with him, raising us with him. And so Paul says God's purpose in raising us with Christ So that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of God the Father, displaying God's character and justice, so we too, like he was raised for a new life, so we are raised for a new life. So there's a kind of journey that Christ went on that he wants us to see that we go on. Beyond Christ's death, which is ours, beyond his burial, which is ours, is Christ's new life, and that's also ours. And all of this is to kind of picture the Christian life as being something like a bridge. We're on a bridge that's, if you like, strung between the foundation that God has already set in place and the future that God already has in store. And Paul is encouraging Christians in every era to look back at what God has done for us and at the same time to look to the future God has in store for us. See how that plays out in verse 5. In verse 5 he says, "If," and it's certainly true, it's not a sort of conditional anxious if, if we've been united with Christ in the shape of, of his death, a death like that, a death that pays the penalty of sin for us, then in the future, although we're not there yet, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his, share the shape of that kind of life that is now his, a life free from sin, a life free from death or any influence of sin or death. And between what God has already done for us, what he has in store for us, it's God's purpose, end of verse four, that we should live a new life. That that connection that God has made for us with Christ should make a difference in the way in which we walk out of here. So someone says, all right, I can begin to see that this is a kind of collectivist way of thinking. I can begin to see a brand new connection, a really close one, between Christ and every Christian, but what about sin? What what difference does that make to the way that I live? I'm struggling not to have a kind of self-centered shape to my life where everything is always, in the end, all about me. I I try to live differently, but I find that really hard. Can you help me? Look in verse 6. He says to us that, we need to know, need to remember that our old self was crucified with Christ. And we find that hard to get our heads around. Doesn't mean the kind of bad part of me that it exists alongside a new part of me. It means all of me as I was before I became a Christian. Some people say it like this: all of me BC, before I came to Christ. That old self was crucified with Christ. Now he's not, he's not sort of. Issue an an instruction, something we should do. He's talking about a fact of what God has already done. Back to our little granddaughter, uh, Polly. It's a statement of fact if her father says to us, Hull City lost an FA semi-cup final in March 1930. We lost, he says to her. And she goes... And Paul says, as a statement of fact... Every Christian died on Good Friday at Calvary. We died when he died. That's the connection, the closeness of the connection that God is making that he is explaining to them. And what was God's good purpose in uniting every Christian to Christ on Calvary at the point of his death? Well, look in verse 6. He says God's purpose was so that the body of sin the body ruled by sin, might be done away with. Literally, as the footnote says, rendered powerless, that sin's authority over that person might be broken so that we should no longer be slaves to sin. And verse 7 kind of unpacks that, explains what that means. Why is the reason? Why is sin's authority broken? How is sin's authority broken? Because anybody who has died has been justified or released, freed from sin. Sin has used its final weapon. Sin has nothing left to throw at that person. And so the wonder of what he is beginning to make clear to us, because it helps us when we go out of here to know this, is that God's free pardon not only frees me from the penalty of sin that falls on the Lord Jesus Christ, God's free pardon also releases me from the tyranny of sin, the rule of sin, the reign of sin, the chains of sin, that sin is able to impose upon me. Now, when we're dealing with a passage like this, it's very important to know when it's time to have a rest. This is one of those times, okay? Have a rest, draw a deep breath, and I'll try to offer you a couple of pictures that I think will help with the pace at which we've been traveling through these particular verses. One comes from a prison and the other from a bookshelf. So here's the picture from prison before I was joined to Christ, if I was struggling against sin, I could have picture what was going on as being a bit like a prisoner trying to escape over the prison wall before the sentence is finished. When sin, the prison officer, catches up with me and tells me to come back to prison, I must go back because I am guilty and the penalty against me has not yet been paid. That's, if you like, what it was like to wrestle with sin before I became a Christian. But for the person who is a Christian resisting sin, he or she is like a prisoner who has been already been released through the prison gate after serving the full sentence. And when the prison officer sin threatens us and tells us to return to prison, we don't have to go. The only power that sin has over the Christian is the power of bluff. Because the penalty of sin, which is death, has been paid. So the power of sin has been broken. We can talk about that over a coffee later if you'd like to. Here's another picture, which again I hope will be helpful, from a bookshelf of thinking about how do you think about your life? If you were writing a, a sort of a, a extended biography in a, couple of, in a couple of volumes, what would be on the spine? What would be the title of volume one? we got as far as that and then if we got as far as volume two now how would you title that second volume differently well here paul is saying that volume one of the spiritual biography of every person who becomes a christian as an adult is has been completed and what belongs on the spine of that first volume of all of our lives is enslaved to sin A Slave of Sin is what it belongs on, because sin was in charge. Sin was the power of that first volume of our life. Whether we came to Christ as a teenager or as a young professional or later in life, Enslaved to Sin is the title of Volume 1. But Volume 2, since we've been united with Christ, that has down the spine of the book, Justified by Christ, Released from Sin by Christ. Because he knows that that although we're not free yet from sin's ability to tempt us, we are free from sin's right to kill us. Because sin can't kill us because we've already died. That's already happened when, in Christ, we were there on Good Friday, caught up in his death in ways that involve us permanently. Paul's aim here, as we travel through verses 8 to 10, is to strengthen us to walk between the foundation laid in Christ and the future that God has in store for us in Christ. Look in verse 8. Now he says, if we died with Christ, which we did, we believe we will also live with him. So this Christ who died and was buried and rose again, and whose resurrection looks forward and begins God's new creation. That journey that he has gone on is ours. And just as we died with him, so we'll live with him in God's new creation. How do we know? Verse 9. We know that because since Christ was raised, he cannot die again. And what's true for him is true for us in him. In him we will rise never to die again. Death no longer reigns over him as it did when he died our death. So death will no longer reign over us. And you see verse 10 tells us there, the death he died, he died to sin, paying the penalty of sin. He did that once for all, for all time and for all his people. But the life he lives, he lives to God. He's in God's presence for all eternity. And just as his death was once for all time, just as his resurrection is irreversible, so it will be to us. If you like, God has established a trajectory in which we live. Already died in Christ, we'll rise in him to irreversible resurrection life. One more verse to go, and then a breather. All right, verse eleven. So here's where this lands. The title of today: Count yourselves, he says, alive to God. Because just as Jesus now lives to God in his resurrection body, free from the shadow of sin, so we are to reckon that we are alive in God, to God, in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Where he is, that's where we are. That's where our center, our identity comes from. Our center of gravity is the trajectory on which God has set us, is all bound up in the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants us, if you like, to line up our thinking with the reality of what God has been doing. Our spiritual status, even though we're here on earth for now, is with Christ, is with God. And one day we'll be there with him, with resurrection bodies like him, even though for the moment we're here with things to do for him here, for the moment. He hasn't told us to do anything so far. He wants us to think straight so that we can live right. He wants us to understand this glory that God does for everyone who becomes a Christian so that we can live rejoicing in what is ours in him. Here's that breather I promised you. Some years ago, there was a cameraman, a man called Colin, his wife from just outside Glasgow, that doesn't matter, uh, and he and his wife won $161 million on the lottery. I'm sure you don't do the lottery, but if you did, imagine that you woke up having won 161 million. How would you feel about that? Here's what she says. She says, I quote, We were tickled pink with the whole notion of winning so much money. We just couldn't believe it. It was sinking in by inches. I want to say that the privilege of a place in God's new creation, new life in the Lord Jesus Christ, forgiveness, forgiveness, The presence of the Spirit of God in our hearts, the privilege of belonging to the people of God is worth far more than 161 million, because Jesus says it is. But it does take time for the grandeur of what God has done for us to sink in, inch by inch or centimeter by centimeter. And here's what the husband, Colin, the cameraman, said about their growing realization once they knew they'd won. Again, I quote, he said, We sat up. We're excited. We were exhilarated. We didn't go to sleep, not a jot of sleep the whole night. And the Apostle Paul, and God speaking through him, wants us to be excited, exhilarated at what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. When did you last have a sleepless night because you were so excited about the privilege of being a Christian? We've sort of lost our grip on the gospel if from time to time it just doesn't keep us up at night with the excitement of what God has done for us back to calling the cameraman he said this again I quote we now have so many new opportunities to explore but we won't rush it again every Christian has so many new opportunities to explore in the light of what God has done for us no reason to rush it but every reason to get on with it and get a deeper grasp of it and celebrate it and just, in a sense, a lightness of it in our step as a result of it. If you want to go out of here and skip on the pavement, the locals will think something happened in here, but it wouldn't be great if there's just a bit of a skip, a spring in our step as we go out of here, as we uh, know again more deeply what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus. And it's only now that he applies what he's been explaining he begins with an objection that is a real one that we need to feel the force of and not lose sight of the force of God's forgiveness God's mop is so magnificent that it's tempting to make mess after mess just to see how magnificent God's forgiving mop really is until we're sitting there, we don't feel the force of him saying, ooh, 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 no, that's mishearing the magnificence of God's forgiving. And then he goes on to explain what we've just been seeing, that sin as a power no longer rules over a Christian because the sentence of death that sin has at its disposal has been paid in Christ, and Christians belong united to Christ, and all that's happened to him has already and will happen to every one of us and so now he says here's what to do about that point three on the outline don't let sin reign you see in verse 12 what he says he says do not let sin reign in your mortal body all of me as i am here on earth don't let sin be in charge sin is a an imposter when sin claims to be in charge Verse 13, do not offer the parts of your body to sin. He means everything about us, hands, heart, mind, feet. The language here pictures soldiers presenting arms before a general. Soldiers offering their weapons as instruments in the service of the general. And so verse 13, he says, what we're to do with all that we are, we're to offer ourselves as those who have been purchased, bought, From death to life. And verse 14, because we're not under law anymore, not under that kind of authority, we're under God's grace, God's love. We can, we're free to offer ourselves to God. And so he invites us to enter into the freedom that has been purchased for us. And each day we need to hear that same encouragement, because we can easily kind of live in a rut. Same old, same old, same old, same old issues. Same old, same old temptations. Same old, same old outcomes. And every day we need to hear this encouragement not to let that happen. Sin doesn't have to be in charge. And we can offer ourselves to God to live in ways that please Him. So none of us can ever say until we get to be with the Lord Jesus Christ in person with resurrection bodies alongside His. We can't say, I will never sin again. But we can all say, we can say every day and in all circumstances, I need not sin right now. Right now, I am actually free to do that. Or I'm free not to do this. Before I became a Christian, I made choices every day. But sooner or later, those choices all came around about me. Every choice I made had me at the heart of it. And now, at last, I'm free to live with Jesus where he belongs as the center, God where he belongs, God's spirit, where he belongs, at the center in me serving him. One last story and I'm done. We were privileged to visit Ethiopia recently to see my brother-in-law. They have vast eagles there, an eagle large enough to pick up a lamb and carry it off to feed to its, its young. Picture our situation a bit like this. One of those vast birds, captured, tethered, tied to a post, got used to being shown off to tourists walking round and round on the end of a a rope. One day, a new owner announces that he's going to release the bird. The locals gather, the rope is is, uh, removed, and the eagle carries on walking round and round in the same rut. He's free to fly, but he stays on the ground tragedy of that bird is like a Christian who continues in the same old rut and the apostle is saying to us learn to fly enjoy your freedom now we're going to pray together in just a moment and as we'll pray we'll do what verse 13 invites us to do, we'll offer ourselves to God as his servants, as if you like his soldiers and I want to encourage you to choose a part of you to offer specially freely to God today. That may be your feet, places you want to go, places you don't want to go. It may be your hands, it may be your eyes, it may be your mind, it may be your heart. In just a moment I'm going to lead us in prayer and I will offer all of all of us to God. And if you want to underline a particular area that today it would be right to offer to God, you'd be glad to offer to God, Because you become afreshly aware you have freedom to do that instead of living in that same old rut. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the death, burial, resurrection, new life of the Lord Jesus. Thank you that in your goodness we are in him. Thank you that in him we died, in him we were buried, in him we're raised, and through him we are able to live a new life, sin's tyranny over us now broken. And so for this coming week, on this particular day, we offer you our minds. Help us to think for you. We offer you our feet. Take us to wherever we can serve you. We offer you our eyes. Take our ambitions and our desires and use them for your glory. We offer you our hands, our hearts, our energy, our resources, and our time. And we ask you to make us useful in your service, to make good use of the freedoms that that you give to us. And we ask in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.